It really is a great joy to be with you, uh, both this morning and God willing this evening as well. It's great to be here, lovely to hear. Uh, um, Richard read to us a few moments ago that rather difficult passage from the book of Romans. I, I want us, we're not going to look at that, I want us to think about John chapter 3 verse 16. No, I'm only joking. Richard, I didn't get you to read it. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful passage, and I think you'll see why in a few moments. It comes at the end of this book called the Book of Romans. The Apostle Paul, probably born round about the same time as the Lord Jesus Christ, became a devout follower of Judaism and was really antagonised by the fact that some people were following Jesus, trusting him, and so became a bitter persecutor of Christians. And then we have in the Bible the dramatic story of how it was on the road to Damascus, going to Damascus to round up and imprison Christians. Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, was converted to Christ. Jesus confronted him, stopped him in his tracks, turned him around completely. He became a transformed man and a great pioneer of gospel preaching throughout the then known world. And he also wrote many of our little New Testament books, sometimes to individuals, sometimes to churches. Now, the letter, the book that was written to the Romans is, is slightly unique in that normally when Paul wrote to a church, he had already visited that church and he was writing to follow them up, to, to help them on in their Christian faith. There were Christians in the city of Rome, but Paul had never yet been to Rome. He'd never visited the, the, the church, the Christians in Rome. And so he wrote to them really to spell out for them what exactly it is a Christian believes. He explains the gospel to them. That's why it's become such an influential book. Augustine, the great theologian of, of what, nearly 1700 years ago, was converted through the book of Romans. Martin Luther the German reformer 500 years ago, was converted through the book of Romans. John Wesley, the man who started Methodism and spread it throughout the UK and beyond, was converted through the book of Romans. It's a very, very significant book because it explains to us, step by step, what a Christian believes. In fact, I'm so convinced of the value of Romans, uh, I mentioned these little booklets. Very shortly we're going to have the book of Romans published in this sort of format so that people can take it with them and read it. It's, it's a key book. It explains that human beings have failed. Romans chapter 1 really describes humanity in the raw and describes some of the sins that we find ourselves involved in. And then Romans chapters 2 and 3, you have refined and religious humanity. But Paul comes to the conclusion at the end of chapter 3 saying all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether we're in the raw, refined, religious, we're all guilty of sin. And then Paul goes on to explain God's remedy to our sinfulness. And of course, it's all bound up in the person of Jesus. That God came into our world and went to a cross. And as he died, he carried on himself our guilt our sin. And he did so out of love for us. He paid a penalty it would take us all eternity to pay. He died so that we might be forgiven. And so Paul comes to another sort of climax in his thinking and, and he says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God 
is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Paul carries on in his letter and applies the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to church and, and to nations and to individuals. It's a powerful book and it's worth reading. But then, chapter 16, and you get this, this list of names. And it's interesting because it almost seems as though, well, what's the point of all those names in the two passages that we had together from that chapter? There are 33 of them all together. In the first 16 verses, there are 26 of them. Paul is writing to the Romans, explaining what the Christian message is, and then he says, now I want you to greet so-and-so, and, -so, and I, I, I just give my regards to so-and-so, my love to so-and-so. It, it's interesting because these people were all known to the Apostle Paul, and of course, all known to God himself, and yet we know very little about them. But they are significant. There's significance, I believe, from this passage we can see it. There is significance in every life that is lived. Now that runs contrary to so much of the current thinking in today's society, a society where we have abortion and possibly euthanasia, where we're used to headlines in the newspapers or television or radio that so many people were killed after a suicide bomber and or there were floods and a mudslide and so many people died. And, and we sort of think, life, life appears cheap all too often. But surely the fact that the Apostle Paul is listing these individuals, many of whom we know nothing about except they're, they're mentioned here, surely Paul is saying every life is significant. I have to say, in my own thinking, I find this very helpful. I think... When I first, I don't know, got a little bit of a glimpse of what astronomers are saying about space, it left me feeling very small. And when you're my height, <laughs> that, that's a double whammy. It's sort of like, yeah, I am very, very small. Billions of stars in space. Billions and billions of miles separating these stars. And, and here we live on one little planet, in a little island, in a very great county. Yes, okay, but, but just individuals and... Is there any significance? You look through the, the, the telescope and we seem very, very small. But then we're also able to look through the microscope. And wonderfully... The DNA system has been made and, and, and these, these billions of cells which make up our human body. A geneticist once said to me that uh, one individual cell is more complicated than all that there is in space. And we have billions making us up. There is significance to every life that is lived. And, and here these, these men and women who are listed, most of them are just humble poor helpers. They're not particularly leaders. They're just ordinary people. We, we don't know anything marvellous about them or anything magnificent in their lives. We have little glimpses but we're repeatedly reminded that these are just subordinate, quiet individuals who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting Paul, who probably had pretty bad eyesight, used to dictate his letters. 
So he spoke them, somebody else wrote them, and then they were sent off to whoever. And in, in the last passage, part of the passage that we had read to us, verse 21 and through to 24, actually Paul mentions a few more individuals who, who were sort of crowded probably in the room where he was dictating this, and, and he mentions them. One of them, if you look at verse 23, you'll see it here, the city's director of public works. I, I read from the New King James Version in my quiet times. There it says the city treasurer. Whatever it was, he was an influential individual. And he was with Paul as he was writing this letter. He was obviously a Christian man. But notice this as well. In verse 23, not only does he say Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Quartus. Who is Quartus? Now, I'm no linguist, but I know that the word quartus means number four. This guy doesn't even have a name. He's number four. He's a slave. He's an anonymous slave. Erastus, the director of public works, and this anonymous slave, they send their greetings. There is significance in every life that is lived. And that applies to you and to me. If sometimes we feel as though oh, nobody's interested, God is. He saw fit that I should be born to the parents to whom I was born, in the era in which I was born, in the county in which I was born. I should have the, the personality, the looks, the... Well, some of it is... I think this is KFC and McDonald's. But anyway, I should have the physique that I've got, you know, basically. He designed me, he designed you. There is significance in every life lived. Interesting, four times Paul refers to some of these people as my beloved. He talks about some of them being his relatives. He talks about two whole households. But after this merciless theological tome of a book, Paul says, ah, but individuals are important in the sight of God. Second truth from this list of names. There is significance, not only in every life lived, but in every deed done. I would love to know some of the details about these people. I, I love biography and autobiography. I, I've always got biographies on the go. I, I just enjoy them. Now, we don't really get much of an insight, but it is interesting what we do find. Phoebe, who strengthened others. Priscilla and Aquila, who were helpers and were lay, willing to lay down their lives for the sake of Paul. Mary, who laboured much to help others. Uh, and then he talks about two of his fellow prisoners. And Tertius, later on, just a secretary. Ah, not just a secretary. Very significant part in the service of God. Gaius, who is our host. Each was significant because of what they were doing and, and, and Paul greets them individually. He refers to them and to their work. He accurately remembers everything about them with affection. Now sometimes in serving the Lord it's easy to think, oh, nobody notices. But it's not a question really as to whether others are noticing. It happens Paul did notice. But the Lord sees all things. He sees the person who clears up the mess after a church service or after a supper or whatever it is. He sees when we show kindness, we go out of our way to be generous and helpful. There is significance in every deed done, but of course, this has a flip side. 
If God sees all that we do that seems right and for his honour and glory, he also sees our sins, doesn't he? He knows us through and through. He knows the thoughts that we have, the dreams, the fantasies, the imagination that sometimes can be wicked. Robert Louis Stevenson said, we all have thoughts that would shame even hell. And do you know, I think he's right. He's aware of all the words that we speak, when we're just nasty, when we lack grace and kindness, when we're horrible, when we're spiteful, when we blaspheme and swear. And He knows all these things. He knows the wrong deeds when we take that which doesn't belong to us when we don't pay our due, even if it's to the inland revenue, we just think, no, why should they have it? When we get involved with people that we shouldn't be involved with, when we watch things we shouldn't be watching, Uh, and, and so we can go on. He knows these things. Sin is always serious in the sight of God, and of course, if we were left to deal with our own sin, we would be in an absolutely hopeless situation, wouldn't we? How can I eradicate the wrong that I've done? And how can I even make sure that I don't do wrong in the future? There's something rotten about each one of us, if we're honest. All other religions basically are saying, try to improve, do your best, and you might just earn enough brownie points with the God that you believe in. The Bible, Christianity, teaches something very different. We could never, never earn brownie points with a holy God. Actually, all religion outside of Jesus is self-righteousness. But he has come into our world. He has gone to a cross. He has died for our sin. He has died so that we might be forgiven. That everything that would cut us off from God and keep us out of heaven and condemn us to hell could be removed, could be washed away. Ah, there is significance in every deed done and we need his forgiveness to make sure that those wrong deeds are dealt with. But that leads me on to my third and final little truth from this series of names. There is significance. If I put it slightly religiously, I'm trying to alliterate and uh, I'll explain. There is significance in every soul saved. The most significant thing about any individual is whether that person, you, me, is whether we have come to trust Jesus Christ, whether we have got right with God, whether we've come to that moment in our lives when turning from sin, the Bible calls that repentance, we've put our trust, our faith, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most significant thing. You say, how do you get that from this passage? In the first 16 verses, ten times the little word in, I-N, occurs. You say, oh, well, that's, how's that significant? Because every time it occurs, Paul talks about people who are in Christ or in the Lord. The thing that defines somebody who is a real Christian is that they are in Christ. They may also be a doctor, a husband, a father, as we thought about But the most important thing is to be in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ, in in the Lord? Well, our sins, our breaking of the commandments, 
Those are the very things that have separated us from God, cut us off from God. He's holy. We're sinful. We're cut off from him. Jesus has come to reach and to rescue us so that the sin which cuts us off from him could be forgiven and we might be reconciled to God. We can come to be in Christ. Not just a sort of how-do-you-do, shaking-hands sort of relationship, but actually in him. In fact, the Bible talks about not only me being in Christ, but he being in me. Like a sponge in water. Is the sponge in the water or is the water in the sponge? Well, the answer is both are true. And as soon as somebody trusts Jesus Christ, they are in him and he, by his Holy Spirit, is in us. Now that is the most significant thing of all. I read over these past few days, um, I read The Son of Hamas. Uh, it created quite a stir when it came out a, a year or so ago and I got it for Christmas and read it and loved it. Wow, this man, I don't want to spoil the book for you, you ought to read it, but this man who was the son of one of the founders of Hamas, involved in so many things, and wow, you sort of think, how could this man ever, ever be in Christ with some of the things that he'd done? And, and then one day he's just walking by the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. And a young, it was the only time the word England came, but I was really pleased it did. One Englishman just said to him, excuse me, are you doing anything tonight? Do you want to come to a Bible study? This hardline Islamic fundamentalist of a man invited to a Bible study? He says to his friend, says, do you want to go? And his friend says, no. So he said, well, I'll go, yes. And it was the beginning of this son of Hamas coming to be in Christ. Now, I don't know what it would be for you. I don't know where you stand spiritually. You're not here by accident. God has a purpose, a plan. He designed you. He's given you life. He knows everything about you and he wants you to be in Christ. And it happens when we come to that moment in our lives when we say, God, I, I'm not the man, I'm not the woman, I'm not the individual that I ought to be. I know that. But I do believe that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world for such as me. He came to call sinners to himself. Every time I read that, like a little child, I want to put up my hand and say, excuse me, I qualify. <laughs> because I do. If he'd come for good people, I'd be out. But if he came for sinners... That includes me. And he died for my sin. He died for your sin. And he wants you to trust him. He's paid the penalty that it would take all eternity to pay. So that if we trust him, we might find forgiveness and new life. And, and the risen Jesus is inviting us to himself. Again, I find that astounding. You know that Jesus is saying to us, come to me. And I sometimes feel as though when I read that, you know, you want to turn behind and be pointing at somebody else behind. No, no, no. Come, you. Come to me, he says. A Christian is simply somebody who's come to that moment in his or her, her life when they've said, oh God, I want to be in Christ. Forgive my past. Come and be my Lord, my Savior, my friend for the future. And this God of grace, this altogether loving God, washes away the past, makes all things new. 
And then he takes us through life. Yes, one day through death and into eternity with himself. Heaven is not a reward. Heaven is a gift given to all who say, I want to be in Christ. Well, my time is up. I think you can tell that I could continue, but I think I've said enough. I'll be at the door, perhaps on that side, David on that side. I ought to say, I've got a horrible streaming cold and you're probably best not coming anywhere near me. So there's a little bit of a caveat, a warning. But um, I'd like to give you all one of those little Yorkshire leaflets. But there's something else. On February the 1st, Christianity Explored is beginning. With all my heart, I recommend that to you. You may feel, well, I'm a Christian, I don't need it. If you've never done Christianity Explored, you ought to. It'll be a great blessing and benefit to you. You might say, oh, I've got too many difficult questions. Then it's just the place. It is the most helpful course, digging into the Bible and discovering what it really means to be right with God. I, I commend that to you. But could I go one step further? Because God doesn't guarantee we'll even have February the 1st. He does say, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Now, now is the day of salvation. I'd like to pray a prayer very similar to the one that I prayed when I became a Christian a number of years ago, a prayer saying, Lord Jesus, I, I, I want to be in Christ today. And I'm going to encourage, urge you to pray it with me. Not out loud, but in your mind and heart, a definite, deliberate prayer asking God to forgive the past and become, a Lord, become Lord and Saviour for the future. And I'd like you to pray it with me. I, I just encourage you to do it. I'm going to pray slowly so you've got time to repeat each sentence. And then if you pray with me, one more thing. Would you just write out legibly your name and address and give it to either David at that door or me at this door. Just by doing that, you're, you're in effect saying, I prayed, prayed with you and I'd like to just drop your line. I'll write to you tomorrow and send you a booklet and a gospel just to help you start getting going in your Christian life. I won't come knocking on your door. I live in Leeds. It's too far to come. But I will write to you and you should get the, the letter on Tuesday. So pray you could pray and then just give me your name and address. I'll write to you. I'll only write once. I won't write again unless you want me to. But, um, but I will write to you. And uh, perhaps the church will get in touch and send you information as well. And um, I think you'll find that so helpful. And then don't forget February the 1st as well. But let's pray, shall we?